in just one second as we allow folks to find their seats and people to find that word. We will be reading from verse 17. This is the word of our God from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread of the Eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. Everyone loves getting an attaboy. They love being encouraged. They love being told that they're doing that which is right and good and true. Everyone appreciates this, especially when it comes from someone who is hard to please or someone that you look up to. It is always a pleasant experience. Because of other pressing issues last week, we kind of jumped ahead of the attaboy that Paul gives the Corinthians up in verse 2. There he, he says that he commends them because you remember him in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. That Whatever it is that Paul says afterward, there is this commendation that kind of overwhelms all of it, that, that no matter what problem is thereby being addressed, Paul's rhetoric is quite tamed and toned down. He seems like he feels this head covering bit, whatever it might have meant at the time was something of a minor infraction, perhaps done out of ignorance, something that is a blip, a momentary lack of focus, something that has gone wrong, but he no doubt thinks is, is a blip. It will be fixed and can be fixed. It's not that Paul is slow to give compliments, that he's hard to kind of yank them out of. 
for all of the fixing of the churches that he seems to have to do, of, of all the issues that he's got to correct in places, he is pretty free with his compliments of those churches. He is a very encouraging apostle. Many of the books that we have hold almost nothing but encouragement, encouraging them to do what is right, to, to move away from those who provide hardship for them and to those who are good. The book of Philippians is, is from almost front to back, just an incredibly positive book. Colossians is the same. First and second Thessalonians, again, so positive about the people in Thessalonica. Even his individual letters to people have that ring to them. And so it's not for nothing that when we begin this in verse 17, Paul's got a much different feeling about him. His tone has changed. He would commend them for how they received and how they kept many of the traditions. But here, when it comes to this, of all the important things that they might do, the Lord's Supper, he says, I will not commend you. Not only does he begin by saying, I do not commend you, at the end of that first section, down in verse 22, he says, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Just to drive home the point that there is no commendation when it comes to how you guys are handling the Lord's Supper. The taking of the Lord's Supper here was all kinds of messed up. And Paul wants to set the Corinthians right. And Paul's words break down into four nice sections, and so we will handle this in four different points. The first thing that Paul is going to address that he is not going to commend them for is the situation. And that situation is this, that the church is in disunity. The church is in disunity. Here, we probably need some context for what's going on because it's quite dissimilar to what we do here. Not in the nuts and bolts of what the Lord's Supper is, but simply in the nature of how they met as churches. Roman and Corinthian houses were, were very much the same in that time. They wouldn't have had enough of a, a congregation to be able to afford or the necessity to meet in a place like this. And they likely met, as almost all of the churches did in the first century, in someone's home. Someone who is wealthy enough to have a large enough home to be able to meet with all of the people in the church. That patron, although the vast majority of people would have been poor, that patron would have been probably fairly wealthy. The setup of these homes in the day would have been pretty standard. There would have been one table present in the house. That table would have been kind of the formal dining room, if you would. And it, it could have had seven, eight, if you really, really wanted to squeeze and shoehorn people and maybe nine people around it. They would have also had a larger atrium-type place outside where larger gatherings could, could take place, where 30 to 40 people might have been able to fit. Certainly enough for a church in this time. It seems as though part of what's going on here is there, there might have been two complete different locations for where the people were celebrating this Lord's Supper. There's some probably inside at the table, enjoying good food, rich food, and plenty of it, and the others outside in the atrium standing around without much food at all. We don't know exactly what's going on here. But there's no doubt that part of this is people are bringing their own food. They're not sharing it with one another. They are then sitting down, eating it whenever they feel like they want to. They are eating and drinking. Some are getting drunk, while others who are away from them or distinct from them or at least factioned off from them in some way, shape, or form are not getting any food at all. They are going hungry. There's no sharing. 
There's no same meal. There's no same bread. There's no same drink. No matter how much they might want to call what they're doing the Lord's Supper, Paul says, this, this ain't it. This is not the Lord's Supper. No doubt Paul would heartily approve of our practice of potlucks. He might not like the name, but nevertheless, he would certainly like the idea that we bring our food together and we celebrate together, we share together. But that was clearly not what was happening here. And behind all of this are these sort of class issues that have been hinted at throughout the letter, but we haven't really drawn out fully. All the way back in chapter one, the desire for knowledge and status is not likely borne out by those who are poor, but borne out by those who are wealthy and rich and have some status in Corinth already. While they have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and they have been convinced in the truth, not only of his death and his resurrection and what it means for them, seems to be some semblance of them trying to hold on to status in the world. In chapter 4, we know that the Corinthians are pulled in by riches. They desire to be rich. Paul says that they are rich already. They are embroiled in lawsuits with one another. Given the nature of the courts in the first century, it is unlikely that poor people would ever think that they could take rich people to court and win. It's unfathomable that they would have thought that they could do that. The practice was almost universally that wealthy people who have means and can buy judges and can buy lawyers and can treat the law the way they want it treated take poor people to court. Even the issues of the strong and the weak from 8 and 9 and 10 are likely due to class issues. The people who are most likely to eat in the temples, those places of social interest where people can talk about business and have these sort of discussions over meals are the wealthy, those who are business owners, those who involve themselves in this chamber of commerce that happens to happen directly in a temple. They are also the ones who would have been better educated, who would have touted knowledge. So while Paul hasn't been out in the open with it, it seems as though the implications throughout the book is that there is a divide between those who are wealthy in the church of Corinth and those who are poor in the church of Corinth. And here, he is pretty clear. He says, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? It is quite clear here that the issue is that some people in Corinth have stuff. Some people in Corinth have enough. It might be the few, but there's enough of them to cause a riff, and the vast majority who have nothing. There is a distinction and a division between the two. Money issues, wealth, and status are major dividing factors here in the Corinthian church, and they are glaring and mostly manifest at no better time than at the Lord's Supper, the very place where such issues ought to be dismantled and destroyed. And wealth, we ought to be assured, is just one area, one aspect that could actually manifest this problem of factions. It could be race or education or even location. But all these things are absolutely inconsequential in the light of what Jesus has done and in the taking of the Lord's Supper. And it is all the more fronted here because unity is at the heart of the Lord's Supper. Meals have always in the Bible, been times of fellowship and family, they are shared by those closest to you. And the Lord's Supper should be a time for the display of the unity of the body together. The Jewish emphasis, which again, we understand Christianity has blossomed 
from Judaism. It is the natural extension, rightful, we would say, extension of Judaism, has an emphasis on exclusion and inclusion when it came to eating a meal. To eat a meal together was to say that you belong to me. It was to say that we belong together. To exclude people from that meal is to have nothing to do with them. Refusing to take a seat at a table is a likewise big deal. Paul calls Peter out for it. When Peter is pulling back from fellowship with Gentiles in Galatia, Peter sees this as nothing less than a renunciation of the gospel and says that Peter, if he doesn't change, stands condemned for it. It's not a matter just of eating preferences. It is a matter of upholding the gospel. And at the very moment when the gospel ought to be presented as clear before people and the unity of believers ought to be most evident, that is the time when it is least evident. Eating together is a sign of belonging together and the very fact that this meal is separate for the Corinthians, that some are eating and some are going hungry, is a sign of a misunderstanding of the very core of the gospel. All the feasts of the Old Testament were meant to do this. They were taken, perhaps in separate houses and in separate locations, but they were taken at the same time with the same idea behind them that the people of Israel would gather together and share together, that they would be unified by these meals and not, not just unified because they're all eating at the same time, not just with those who are living, but the idea is that these feasts were also a remembrance feast. When they gathered for the Passover, there was a recounting of the story of the Passover, almost like they were living through the Passover again to unify them, not just with the other people who are doing the Passover meal, but with the people who went through the Passover. They were all the people of God. The fact that this is so gravely important to Paul is again seen in how he skips directly over and if you didn't know better, might even think that he was encouraging drunkenness. He says, some get hung go hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to do that in? He's like, hey, listen, if you want to get drunk, go home and get drunk. But don't, don't do it here while other people have nothing. A, something that he would elsewhere call debauchery is blown over because he just can't care about it right now. He's incredulous that this is going on. Unity is no small thing. It's been a while since we've really talked about that, but it is, it is in the background of almost everything that's going on in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, again, has a litany of problems made manifest in it. The number one problem is unity. The number two problem is unity. The number three problem is unity. The 853rd problem is theological misunderstandings. And then there's sexual practices, but they are way down the list. Unity is the issue in 1 Corinthians. Disunity among the body of Jesus is not to be tolerated. Now, it's true that we have to be unified around something, and that at times means excluding people. Just like eating a meal together means inclusion and exclusion. We understand that. But for those who rightly confess Jesus Christ, who are believers bound by the Spirit of God, one cup, one spirit, one Lord, one bread, one baptism, all of that, if you are unified together, then you are unified at this table. If you are ununified at this table, you don't understand what's going on otherwise. Disunity should not be 
named among the body of Jesus Christ, not by the leaders, not by the body as a whole. It cannot be tolerated. If you have an issue with a brother or sister, take care of it. If you don't know them, get to know them. If you're like, I don't know how to be unified to a person I don't know, I have a solution for you. You have a phone, call them. Take them out to eat. You have a phone, call them. Say, hey, I would like to get to know you. Let's get together and read the Bible. There are ways to overcome those things. We're not a 5,000-member church. You can get to know one another. Do so. We cannot be disunified. That is the situation. Paul then turns to the supper, which is simply the gospel on display. Paul turns to the supper and he starts to go through the tradition that he handed to them. It's interesting that this seems to Paul to be the solution. He, he goes through exactly kind of the procedure that works. And this reads as a procedure. This is what Jesus did. And then Jesus did this. And you are supposed to do these things. But it's not that they're doing the procedure wrong. It's that they don't understand what lies behind the procedure. Paul starts by saying that on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Now the word could mean that. And Paul is quite clearly using something that is a tradition that's passed on to him. Maybe he means it like that. But the word doesn't necessarily mean betrayed. It can also mean handed over. And given how Paul seems to want to point quite clearly not only to the Old Testament, but also to the sovereignty of God in all things, we might think that this is an allusion back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 Verses 6 and then in verse 12. In verse 6, Isaiah 53 says, We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And that, that punished him for the iniquity of us all in Greek, which is what the Corinthians would have been reading out of the Old Testament if they read anything, is he handed him over for our sins. Not betrayed, but handed over. He was handed over for our sins. In verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he handed out, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That last bit is also translated and was handed over for our sin. The Lord hands the Lord Jesus Christ over. God hands him over. The Lord gives himself up. This, if it is the way we are to understand it, is an amazing thing. Because on the night that he knew he was to be given over, the night that he knew he was to hand himself over, that the Lord was handing him over, that God was dividing, giving him to those who despised him, who would promote incredible evil against him, seek to destroy his life that very night. Jesus, knowing that that is going to happen and knowing that God stands behind it, breaks bread and gives thanks to the very God who is demanding that out of him. Why? Because this is done for you. He thanks God that he himself can be a provision for us, for the disciples sitting around that table. As 
much as they squawk about who can be the greatest in the kingdom of God and, and how much they misunderstand the things that Jesus has spoken to them and, and has tried to explain to them, nevertheless, he is, he is thankful that he is the one who gets to be broken for them, that they might not suffer what he is about to suffer. The heart of the Lord's Supper is about love. It's about love for the people of God that Jesus gave his very life out of love for us and he thanks God that he can give his life for this. And therefore, the focus of the entirety of this section of the text is on our remembrance of this act. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember that his body was taken for you. Not just for a singular you, but for you all. It was given for all you guys. Right? You, you communally, together, he gave it for you. Not, not just you as an individual, but for you and your neighbor, your brother and your sister. The blood was spilled to make for us a new covenant. The Lord's Supper focuses so intently on the death of Jesus Christ, the one death that pays our sins. It is not one death for some and a different death for others but one sacrifice for all. One sacrifice for Paul, one for Peter, one for you, one for the me. One for me. I usually don't refer to myself with the definite article, but uh, there is definitely only one of me, and you can praise God for that. So for you and for me, for the least of us, for the best of us, there is one sacrifice. No one needs more sacrifice. No one needs less All of us need Jesus. And while there might be differences between us in class and race, morals and gender, there is no other sacrifice. No matter how good you are, no matter how superior you may feel, each time you come and take of this bread, you are reminded there is one loaf for all. There is one body for all. There is one cup for all for all. No one needs more. No one needs less. It is enough for both you and all of your brothers and sisters. So we are bound together in this sacrifice, in this one bread, through this one cup. It ought to be both humbling, indeed it should be humbling, because anyone who thinks that they're superior must check that at the door. The very nature of this offering, for your sake, makes it impossible to know rightly what you're doing, and think at the same time that you are better than anyone else who might come and take this bread. But it's also helpful for us because we are indeed reminded that his body and his blood are utterly sufficient. You don't get a different one, but you do have enough of one. We need these reminders. We need the reminder that the Lord indeed has his body broken for us, that his blood has been shed for us. It's past tense, it's over and done, and we are remembering it here. He is always abiding, always providing. The sacrifice of Jesus is always there for you. As certain as that bread is sitting on that tray, on that table, the body of Jesus has done all that it needs to to intercede for you in your sin before God. It is certain for you. It is near to you as a word. The body of Jesus Christ and his death is the center and focus of the Lord's Supper. But there is also the cup, which is a new covenant in 
the blood. It's not new in that it repudiates the old or that it's in some sort of competition with the old, but it's that it's anticipated by the old. If our son, 14, is going to be taking driver's training, if he wants to save up for a car, I can tell him. I'm not going to, but I could tell him. I'll match you dollar for dollar. You want to save up for a car? You save up for a car. I'll match you dollar for dollar, right? And then there's going to come a time he's going to get enough money. He's going to say, I'm going to go buy a car. I'm like, okay, let's go buy your car. We'll buy your car. That deal is now over. We've made a deal. We've fulfilled that deal. That deal is now over. But that deal being over was really just an anticipation, as he would know, for the next deal, which is how you handle the car. What, what we're going to do about gas money, what we're going to do about insurance money. Like, it's anticipating a different deal. It's not that the, the deal that we might make about insurance or about anything else repudiates the first deal, but his buying the car seals the end of that first deal. This is a new covenant, a new covenant, not because the old is worthless, but because the old has simply come to an end. It's a new covenant. Covenants are contracts or agreements between God and his people about how they would live with one another, how they view the world, how they ought to see what God has done. The best illustration of this is, of course, the Ten Commandments, which is the, the most clear and distinct demonstration of what the covenant was between God and Israel. Those Ten Commandments don't just tell you how you relate to God, though. They're, they're not just a way for you to understand that, hey, you're not supposed to have any idols, you're not supposed to make any graven images. No other gods before me. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. That, that's not the sum total of the ten. Many of the ten have to deal with how you deal with one another, precisely because of who God is. You cannot murder precisely because God has made a deal with that person as well. To break fellowship with him, to murder him, is to break covenant with God. The covenants that we have with God are not just covenants between us and God, but between us and one another. The blood of Jesus seals this new covenant. It makes it true forever in the place of those that have come before. It signifies that it will never be broken again, for Jesus' own blood has made it true. But it also tells us something very, very important. The blood is now how you relate to God and how you relate to everyone else. You don't relate to God through effort, through sacrifice, through demands, through morality, you relate to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. You relate to others the same way. You relate to it by his blood. It was spilled for you. It was spilled for them. It seals that all before God are equal of worth and importance before him because his blood was spilled for them. As Paul implied back all the way in the first chapter, the very nature of the sacrifice of the cross of Jesus Christ inverts the things of this world. In weakness, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, he is strong. The lowly and the despised are the ones who are heralded in the kingdom of God. The poor are those who are exalted. Those who are accounted as nothing are made something so that they might shame those who think there's something in the world. Everything is inverted through seeing the world in the blood of Jesus Christ. So every time you walk that aisle, you are proclaiming this very truth. Jesus died to give me his life and his blood seals that truth and that all who come here are welcomed by all who have come here. There is one body. There is one cup. There is one sacrifice for one people. You are always to remember this.
How can you possibly take this sacrifice, take this meal, this bread, and think that you are somehow better than another? Think that you can be separated from them? To do so is to boldly proclaim that you have either ignored or don't understand the first part of what the bread and the cup are meant to signify. In the end, the Lord's Supper is to signify not only the grace offered in the gospel and thereby be a source of grace itself through faith, but is also meant to signify the outcome of that grace. We come not just as a forgiven people, but we come as a people together. One sacrifice, one covenant, one bread, one cup, and therefore one body. Hold fast to these truths, friends, and you will do well. This is what you proclaim every time you take the supper. It is your sermon. It is your proclamation. It is your confession. This is my belief and my reality. Christ has died to make us one in God. Paul then moves on to the third paragraph, our third point, where he talks about this sickness where the children are disciplined. The children are disciplined. The Lord has indeed died. He dies. He doesn't swoon. He doesn't faint. He dies. It's not a mirage. It's not a, a, a magic trick. He dies. And we have the audacity to call the day on which he died Good Friday. We come to this, and one of the things that we call this is the Lord's Supper. We also call it the Eucharist. That's not pleasant for a number of different people. They don't like some of the connotation with that. But the Eucharist just means Thanksgiving. It's a time of joy, of happiness. It's good. We celebrate and we remember with glad and joyful hearts that our Lord has died, that he died for us. We're to be happy about Jesus' death, I think Paul says. But we're not to be happy about it in an unworthy manner. There is a way to be happy about the Lord's death in an unworthy manner. He's not talking about you taking the Lord's Supper as a sinner here. That doesn't mean that you should have a load of unrepentant sin and think that you can come as you so choose to this table. If you have sin, repent while there is time. Jesus is good to forgive you, friend. Repent in his name and he will gladly forgive you. With open arms, he will accept you back into the flock of God. He is ready and willing and able to pass over any sin that you have committed. Repent. That is not first and foremost what Paul is talking about. What Paul means is that they're taking it related to the problems of unity here. The unworthy manner in which they think that they are taking the Lord's Supper is that they think that they can take it factioned off from one another at different times and in different measures without thinking well about the sacrifice and what it means for how we relate to one another. After all, it's not just Christians who think that the death of Jesus was good. The Jewish leadership quite clearly thought that Jesus' death was a good thing as well. They thought it was a sign that they were right. They thought of it as a sign that God had cut this man off, that his blasphemy was put to an end. He saved others, as they said, but he couldn't save themselves. It showed that their understanding was good, their judgment right. It elevated them, it supported their conclusions, 
it enhanced their view of the world and even their stature in the world being affirmed. And are not many here in this passage doing exactly the same? They are taking in the bread the death of the Lord, but denying its significance and its power. They see it as a trifling thing. Not making a dent in the fashion of their lives, how they live their lives, how they think about their lives. Not calling for a radical re-examination of how they live and what they do. They are content to go on with their lives, to keep their social status and their consumption as if nothing has changed, but in the death of Christ, everything has changed. They deny the power of a sacrifice and therefore they act just like the Jewish leadership acted many years before. Therefore they are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. If all this table does for you, if all communion does for you, is tell you that you are good and that you are accepted and that thus life can always go on as it always has, you're doing it wrong. It is a sign that everything has changed. It does not reaffirm the nature of this world. It does not reaffirm your fleshly pursuits. It does not keep you and allow you to view the world in the same way. If it does, you're simply celebrating his death, not for what it does for you, but for what it does in keeping you exactly where you are, in supporting you, not in moving you to a place of truth and knowledge in God. This is why Paul says that you are to examine yourself. This word examine comes from the exact same word as genuine back in verse 19. Paul says, hey, I, I know that there are factions. It's almost like there, there must really be factions among you. There must be because it's even coming out in the Lord's Supper. But I know that this must be the case because that's got to be proof that there is genuine people among you. That people are separating out from you because they're not genuine. So he's saying here, be genuine. Be the real people of God. The real people of God are those who understand and practice what the Lord's body and blood mean to demonstrate that they understand what it has actually done. In the end, this is what Paul means by discerning the body. Clearly, that means discerning the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it means more than that. It's not just discerning what the body of the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's discerning what the body of believers are. Do you know the body of believers. Do you know what that means? Do you know what it signifies? If you eat this bread and you don't understand what it means to be part of a body, you are eating it in unworthy fashion. The body and by the body of Christ, we ought to understand that. We are bound to one another. As a finger is bound to a hand, is bound to an arm, is bound to a a body, you are bound to one another. The good of your brothers and sisters is your good. Their suffering is your suffering. Their hurt is your hurt. Their joy is your joy. Their struggle is your struggle. And if you don't get that, if you don't understand it, if you don't like that, if you don't think that that's true, then this is not the supper for you. It is not the table for you to take. We say here that membership is an important part of this table. That you either are a member of a church and simply visiting with us today, or that you're here and you are seeking to become part of a membership of a church. 
people have issues with that. They have issues with it for good reason. They, they say, hey, listen, you know, I, you guys are all about you say, when I just got done several chapters saying, we're not going to put before people demands that the Bible doesn't put before them. Right? So we've got certain rights and certain things that the Bible commands us to do and certain things the Bible forbids us to do. And, and people would look at us and say, hey, membership ain't on that list. It's true. Membership isn't. But membership does something artificially, which would have happened organically in the New Testament. They were bound together. There might have been, been fissures in that binding. There might have been issues with how tightly they were connected, but there's no doubt that they were connected by the name of Jesus Christ. There was a church to go to. There weren't many churches to belong to. No Christian at this time, not just because of the nature of the church, but because of the nature of how they thought of religion, could ever think that they could be a Christian out on their own. No one would have thought that. That is not the day and age we live in. And so membership becomes important because membership does for us artificially what would have been part and parcel of their reality organically. That you are bound to the people who sit next to you. You're bound to the people who you have committed yourself in membership to. You are bound to them. Many people think that they need no such connection today, that they can float from church to church. They never submit to the leadership there. They never suffer with others. They never know what it is true to be worshiping with people that you know are hurting and suffering and people who are joyous. You hear things through the grapevine, but you, you don't actually know these people. You don't know their lives. But to know those things is to be truly unified to them. If you don't care to be unified with people, my question for you is, why care to come and take a meal that is built around unity? Paul notes, astonishingly for many, that taking the Lord's Supper in this unworthy manner is why some in Corinth are sick and dying. To a lot of people, this elicits, man, that is dumb. People don't get sick and die because they do something like this in an unworthy manner. They do it because they got viruses. They got bacteria, probably from eating off of one single loaf. Yeah, they do. Why did they get sick, though? Why did the viruses and the bacteria attack them? Paul's not dumb. He might very well know that there are other reasons why people get sick and die, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it is the Lord's judgment upon them. They're doing this horrific thing, and the Lord is correcting them, very strongly correcting them. We must be careful. When we talk about judgment here, for the people who belong to the Lord, Paul is very clear. This is not punishment. It's judgment, but it's not punishment. The people of this world might be punished with natural disasters, and we can say that it's a punishment on God, by God, for the evil that they've done. But Christians should never speak that other Christians are ever getting penalized. It's discipline. If you've never noticed, that word discipline is really tightly connected to the word for disciple. They're being pushed to Christ. They're being shown the error of their ways. It is a mercy of God to do this. 
So Paul appeals to the Corinthians, listen, you're, you're sick, see the error of your ways, repent and come back close to God, find salvation so that you might not be condemned with the world, but saved. And we often laugh and not unrightly at the way that some are overly serious and overly concerned about what amounts to bread and juice here. We do not believe that this is going to magically become the true body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when I break that bread, I am allowing the Lord Jesus to undergo his crucifixion all over again. Reminded of the story of Luther when he first gave his, his first mass. As the priests who were above him told him, you know, you are... You are carrying God in your hands. Trembled. Trembled so much that he was close to spilling the blood as he conceived of it at Jesus Christ that other priests had to come over and grab his hands to steady them. Even Luther would mock that later. But I think that because we stand far away from that, that we take it almost at times too lightly. It is to be joyful, but it's a solemn occasion. There is to be thanksgiving, but there is a seriousness here. These things aren't exclusive, but they're joined together. This is Christ's body given for us, all of us, each of us, that we are taking together as a symbolic gesture of what he has done for us on the cross and how it becomes part of who we are. We ought not to take that lightly, even if we are to take it with joy and thanksgiving. Consider these things well before we partake this morning. And lastly, Paul very quickly comes to the solution where the problem is dispelled, and he puts the matter frankly and flatly. When you gather, simply wait for one another, which I just find hilarious. Like, there is deep theological problems here. Like they are not understanding a lot of what's going on. They, this is a misunderstanding of the gospel. And at the end, Paul's advice to them is just stop eating until everyone else can get food. That's the solution. It's very simple. Take it together. Like it, it's not complicated. If you're unified, do it together. The meaning is in the symbol. This is the wonder of the death of Jesus Christ. Not simply our salvation from our own sins, but Jesus binds together multitudes of different people. People bound in the Lord Jesus Christ who would otherwise not have any concern for one another. Not run in the same social circles. Not, not run in the same affinities. You like different things than I like. We root for different teams. We, we think differently politically. We would go to different clubs. We would live in different places. All of those things. Even more than that, people who would otherwise be at war or at enmity or in anger or disgust with one another, the Lord Jesus Christ brings them back together. This is a sign of the miracle of the gospel. One bread for all who would come to know God. One cup for everyone who would know his justification. Wait for one another. Keep one another close. Love one another. For Christ's body is given for you. And his blood is here as the new covenant. When you take and you eat and you drink, you are to remember all that this means. And you are to find grace and salvation in Jesus alone. Let us pray.
Father, we are indeed grateful for the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has given his life for ours, that we might be one with you and reconciled one to another. May this act center our lives. May it be the lens by which we understand ourselves and our neighbors. May it give us hope for the future. May all praise and honor and glory and power be yours forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.